0: Night, I was not with you last uh, last Wednesday, and I'm grateful for Phil and Nat filling in for me while I was away. And I, I heard many fine comments about their work, and I do appreciate that and them. And we want to get back to our course of study, which is the life of Christ. And we've been studying it from a little different perspective. And you've heard me say this several times, but we've been studying it from the standpoint of a chronological approach. This happened first. This happened second. This happened after that, and it, because of that, we've covered a lot of material already, though we're still in the earlier portions of the Gospel accounts, and to do this, you have to take some a paragraph here and a paragraph out of this one and kind of meld that together to get a chronological approach. And you and I have talked about four uh, biographies of the Lord, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we've been through that and discussed that, each of them, focusing on a different aspect of the life of Jesus. This particular approach is very helpful, I think, though. We don't study it that way that much, and it's helpful for us. At least it helps me. I I suppose it would be of help to others as well uh, to look at it in in this perspective. Now, we've talked uh, something of the significance of Jesus being baptized by John. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and, uh, you know, these wonderful machines that don't work. Thank you. And then uh, uh, all of the involved in that, he makes his disciples. I am working my way up to the first Passover, which John talks about. And the other gospel accounts really begin with the life of Jesus in the great Galilean ministry in the north. But there was preaching and teaching and signs that were done before then as Jesus went to the first Passover. So we're indebted to John to help us understand that there were three Passovers, three feasts at least... And that would give us over a little over three years in his public ministry. And with this information, we come to the early Judean ministry. Sometimes they call it the year of uh, obscurity. I don't know that I like that terminology, but they call it that. It's an earlier ministry of Jesus prior to or before going up into Galilee and starting the great Galilean ministry. He goes down to Jerusalem for the Passover. It is during that time that he cleanses the temple the first time. There would be another cleansing in chapter, Matthew chapter twenty-one. It is there that we have this conversation with Nicodemus, where we were at last time I was with you, and we were looking at the new birth and the significance of that. And Nick and Jesus um, uh, comes, or Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and um, Jesus immediately speaks to him about the. The necessity of the new birth, verses 1 through 3. And then something of the, uh, the nature of it is given in chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. One birth, but there are two elements to that one birth. There is water and there is the spirit. The spirit, of course, referring to the teaching of the word of God that produces the faith in the individual to come and be baptized in water and um, thus entering into the... Uh, The kingdom of God. Then there is evidence of that, about verse 6 through 8. Interesting passages. You and I have recounted some of these important matters. Uh, The results of this and the basis of this, about verse 14, about 9 and 10. uh, Great love is the result of this. A great sacrifice took place because of it. Uh, Verse 13 and 14, great love of God. Verse 16, Uh, there in turn uh, whoever believes in him is not condemned verse 18 still involved in the conversation with Nicodemus I'm kind of running through this because I'm reviewing what we uh, went over uh, together prior to this and then some of course will not uh, obey and will not respond to it verse 19 they love darkness rather than light and his point for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light verse 20 lest his work should be exposed. And then uh, uh, on down through verse 21, some are motivated by God to obey God, and thus the new birth. After this, verse 22, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside. So he's left the city of Jerusalem, and he's gone out into the countryside, and he's preaching and teaching to them out there. And um, there John is uh, baptizing in Enon, near Salim, because there was much water there. It was plentiful there. And so he's immersing. And you and I covered that particular point and the significance of it. The discussion about John's disciples and the Jews over the matter of purification. And the issue of Jesus coming up about Jesus baptizing. Though John chapter 4 tells us he did not baptize himself. He, his disciples baptized. John chapter 4 verse 1 And then we come down to about verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. This is John's last real testimony about Jesus. And uh, you see it noted there in the the graphic that I tried to put together. And growing hostility begins to ensue by verse 33 against Jesus. Whoever receives his uh, testimony sets his seal to this that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And then this important verse, I think, that you ought to mark, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And I have a line drawn under believes and a line drawn under does not obey. And uh, then a line connecting "believes and obey" in my translation. I tell you why I did that because I want to remember that uh, belief is kind of a general term which includes obedience. And you see that in verse thirty-six: "Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life." So you see that um, believe includes the idea of obedience. It's more than just a mental assent. Sometimes denominational friends of ours will try to say well i believe but they haven't really obeyed and then you want to write in the margin hebrews five eight and nine that he became the author of eternal salvation to all those that obey him so hebrews five eight and nine would be a good verse to pencil in in the margin at this point right here jesus obeyed and we must obey as well so we can never take obedience out of the gospel plan of salvation now chapter four In verse 1, we have the last part of our discussion here, the woman of Samaria, and that's an important discussion in the fourth chapter of John. He's working his way back up to Galilee. He has finished his uh, preaching, which he, if you go back to uh, John chapter 2, John chapter 2 and 23, now when he was in Jerusalem, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So he was doing signs in Jerusalem during the first Passover of, his, of the year of his ministry there. And now he's working his way out into Judea. We have the discussion about John. And now he's working his way on up north. And it's about a three-day journey from Jerusalem up through Samaria into Galilee. Uh, the Jews normally would not do that. They would ford the river, go over into the Perea area. They'd go over into the east side, go around Samaria, and, and ford the Jordan again, go on into the foothills there of Galilee. And that would take about seven days to do that. But they did that because they hated the Samaritans. And they didn't want to have anything to do with the Samaritans. And that point comes up in our discussion tonight in John chapter 4. They looked upon Samaritans as a mongrel race. They wouldn't have anything to do with it. They hated them. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Now, there are several reasons for that. He's not afraid of the Pharisees, and he's certainly not afraid of Herod. But now he is going up to an area that's much more receptive to uh, his preaching at the present there's a lot of hostility beginning to grow against him down south in Jerusalem. So he's going to the region where they would be much more receptive to him and for him. After all, all of his apostles came from Galilee except one named Judas. And so he goes to Galilee. But never get the idea he's running from the, from the opposition. He's being very wise in the way he handles the matter. And he knows in his own divine mind... What's the best way to say it? How's, when's the best way to say it? And, and where's the best way to say it? And right now he's going on up into Galilee. Before he gets to Galilee in the north though. He, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Um, And the location of this, I would say, the best I can come up with on this matter, this is pretty factual as far as where this place is located today. Now, I've never been over there, but I'm told by those who have and who know the area and been there many times, you know, people say this happened here, and people say this happened there, and you don't really know for sure whether that's true or not. It's probably some trying to commercialize it a little bit and say, well, this is where this happened, this is where that happened. But on this, we can pretty well pinpoint with accuracy where this happened and where the matter took place. Now, I don't know in the pages of the Old Testament when it talks about Jacob who dug that well. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. I don't know when he dug that well, but it belonged to him. So the water rights were his. And so it becomes a very important uh, uh, matter for consideration there. Jacob dug the well, gave it to Joseph, but Joseph's tomb is in the area nearby. So Joseph is buried. You'll remember, take my bones when you leave and uh, you leave this uh, nation and go back to the land of our fathers. And they did. And they took the remains of Joseph from Egypt and carried him back to the land. And this is the place where Joseph would be buried in this area. So he came to a town of Samaria. I believe I could take and draw a big circle with my foot about 100 uh, feet in, um, in diameter. And I could pretty well be certain these, this is where Jesus stepped at one time in the past. This is pretty well identifiable as far as a geographic location is concerned. John's pretty clear on it. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. You know what that tells me about Jesus? He was a human being that got tired like the rest of us. He was a human being that got thirsty like the rest of us. He's a human being that's making a rather. on foot, and he goes from southern Judea up north into Samaria, and he is tired. If we go by the sixth hour, as far as Jewish time is concerned, it'd be around noon. We go about Roman time, it'd be more like six in the afternoon. In the evening. And so take your pick. I rather choose to think it's more the six hour probably means around six in the afternoon. But um, he's there. He's weary because he was a human being. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 5, he emptied himself. The mind of Christ, he emptied himself. Became took on the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. He's a human being. And identifying qualities like that tell us. This is the son of God. Fully human being. Fully son of God. The only begotten son of God. He's a human being. But he's God in the flesh. The only one like him. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Verse 7. That was her job. Women carried water. In the ancient Near East. That was their job. That was part of their household duties. Go get the water. And. That's what they did then. She's coming out, a Samaritan woman, to draw the water for her family, for her household. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Give me a drink. He's thirsty. For his disciples had gone away into the city to what? To buy food. Something to eat. The Samaritan woman said to him, how do you ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now, this goes back to the point we made earlier about them not having any relationship with each other. They don't talk to each other. They don't have anything to do with each other. They uh, they hate each other. And she's somewhat surprised. Now, how could she recognize he was a Jew? By his speech, by his clothing, she knew he was a Jew. The Samaritan woman said to him, verse 9, How is it that you a Jew ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see how John puts that parenthetical statement in there so that we'll be sure to get it? Because John knows I'm writing this to future generations that may not know that. I'm writing this to know the animosity that exists between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so he puts in by inspiration this uh, historical note. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Uh, What is the gift of God? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God. Jesus is the gift of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is the gift. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is Who it is that is saying to you, he's the gift of God. If you knew who I was, you'd give me a drink. Saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. Literally, living water is moving water. Living water is water that's flowing water that continues to flow, which is quite a blessing in ancient times. But he's not talking about just water here, is he? He's talking about spiritual blessings. And so he's beginning to make a point here, and he uses the physical water as a beginning point to move into the spiritual blessings that can be received from those who, out of obedient faith, turn to the Savior. Now, I want to say just a brief thing here in a... I try to stay closely to the text, but certain thoughts come to my mind. And one of the thoughts that comes to my mind is this is an excellent study on how to approach people. This, Jesus kind of laying a pattern out here. Now, this person doesn't know who Jesus is. This person really is not thinking spiritually. This person's only thinking about uh, material things. And now, Jesus approaches her. She comes to him. He asks her for water. Uh, he brings up a subject of commonality, something that they would both be interested in, the water. Uh, is there not something that we can learn here on how to approach people with regard to the gospel and teaching them about spiritual things? I think there's a wonderful pattern that Jesus gives us here. Uh, we could look at this. I see how he transitions very smoothly from the, na- the physical to the spiritual. He says, now, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, when he says living water, she's probably thinking water that freely flows. But Jesus is thinking in a spiritual sense of living water, water that continues to bless, a spiritual blessing. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? (laughs) <laughs> where are you going to get this, how are you going to get it, now she's still thinking from a material standpoint, you understand, Nicodemus had that problem, he's talking about that new birth, being born from above, John chapter 3, verse 3 through 5, he said, well how can a man be born again when he's old, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb, Jesus said, you don't understand, I'm talking about a spiritual birth, born of water and the spirit, You can't enter into the kingdom of God unless you're born again, born from above. You must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. They were thinking physically. Jesus was thinking and speaking spiritually, and he goes on to explain and helps them understand. The woman's in that same situation where she hasn't got it yet. She's looking and listening, but she doesn't understand. How can you do this living water thing? This is a deep well. A deep well down there doesn't have flowing water. Uh, You don't even have anything to draw water with. The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? So she claims some kin to Jacob. As far as a, a Samaritan, he gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. So this is a well-known place for uh, 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 watering both the livestock and the people. And we've had this for a long, long time here. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Another step forward in approaching this person with regard to not understanding uh, considerate respectful after all this samaritan woman he's very respectful of her jews are not that way toward samaritan people men or women but he's very considerate he's very respectful of this person he knows this person doesn't understand he's trying to lead this person in the right direction how will she respond where do you get that living water are you greater than our father jacob He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Now that's got her interest even more. So he starts with the commonality of the water. And then he continues to lead her down into the right direction. Can we not learn something about how to approach people with the gospel and teaching them the word of God, showing consideration, Showing compassion, showing respect, not compromising anything, but at the same time leading them in the right direction to help them see the truth that they need. But whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's getting closer and closer to the important subject at hand. The woman said to him, sir... Give me this water. That's what you want to hear. I want this. Though I'm sure she doesn't understand the import of all of this yet. Sir, give me this water. Who wouldn't want that? So that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw, here to draw water. I won't have to come back here and draw any water. That would be super good. That I would just constantly have water. Now, she doesn't understand yet. But he's leading her in the right direction. Now, he brings this point up in verse 16. Wonder why he said this to her. Jesus said to her, "Go call your husband. Come here. Go call your husband." The woman answered him, I have "No husband." Jesus said to her, "You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. We're going to have to confront our sins." We're going to have to face the music. We're going to have to look in the mirror and say, I'm the reason that I'm guilty of sin. This woman has lived a sordid life. I don't know all of the issues involved in uh, uh, this particular woman's life, but I know that she was a sinful woman. And in that regard, Jesus knew that she needed this living water, she needed the forgiveness. He's leading her in that direction. He is not trying to twist her arm. He's not trying to pressure her or uh, over-persuade her. But this is an important point. We've all got to get to this point sometime or another where we recognize the sinfulness of our sins and our life. And we face it. For you've had five husbands. For you've had five husbands and the one you have is not true. What you have said is true. The woman said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, when she saw and heard what Jesus said about her life, then she came to realize this is not just another ordinary person. And she realizes, now, this is a Jew that's come up from the south. This is a prophet. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, I see this in verse 20 as a deflection. She deflects, gets off the subject, changes the subject from her sins. So now, let's talk about worship. And I've seen that a lot of times when you're kind of studying with somebody and you're trying to teach them and trying to help them, and you realize, now, they really need to, we, need, we really have, uh, another step to make, and then we need to make this step after that. We need to come to understand this truth after that. And then they make a jump that's way out of uh, out of court from where we're trying to go and what we're trying to do. And that's exactly what this woman did. Now, one of the things that always uh, amazed me, just kind of amazed me, in studying the Bible with people, having Bible studies with people, you get to talk about authority, talk about sin, and you're helping them understand the gospel, the meaning of it, and all that kind of stuff. And somebody will say, yeah, but wh- what about the beast in the book of Revelation? And I'm thinking, you know, why, why would you ask that now? Uh, why would we go to that? Uh, and and what, what does Revelation 20, have you studied Revelation uh, and I'm, but I try to take a cue from what Jesus did here, and what did He do? He answered her question very directly, and then got right back on the point. And I might even say it this way: He answered her question to bring her back to the point. Now I, I can't always do that. I don't always have the wherewithal and the insight to try to do that, but he answered her question in such a way that brought her right back to the stream of thought where they, should, where they both were on the right track. She's jumped track. She's gotten off onto something else. Now, let me talk a little bit about her question so that we can understand what that is, and then we'll talk about how Jesus brought, it right back, brought her right back to the place where she should have been. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She's talking about Mount Gerizim. And there is a lot of history there that I would love to talk about, but we don't have the time to talk about that. We're talking about Shechem and that whole area there. And hey, Joseph, I could go on and on about the history of Shechem and Mount Gerizim and that kind of thing. And you know, I I ought to look it up. And you folks that are so sharp with um, Google, when you get home, Google the Samaritans and see how many Samaritans still live there. Uh, There are Samaritans there today at Mount Gerizim where they worship. Why did it become a place of worship for them? There's a lot of history behind that, but it did. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. But you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And you and I know a little bit more about that with regard to the history of the temple in Jerusalem and the building of the temple and the destruction of it by Nebuchadnezzar and then the rebuilding of the temple and then the refurbishing of the temple by Herod the Great and, and it is the place of worship for the Jewish people. But here's Samaritan. Here's Samaritan. Um, this temple built by Solomon... And then Solomon died, Rehoboam became king, Jeroboam led the people off, I said, well, it's okay to worship in Dan and Bethel, it's okay, we'll worship up there. And so this divergence of worshiping in other places comes about, and now we've got people worshiping up at Mount Gerizim, and we've got the Jews worshiping in Jerusalem. It's a lot of history there, isn't there? We are indebted to the Samaritans for one thing what's called the Samaritan Pentateuch. The Samaritan Pentateuch is one of the ancient manuscripts of the Old Testament. And it is a, a very important ancient manuscript that helps us with just one of them. It's not the only one, but it's one important manuscript that does help us with the backbone text of our, of our Old Testament. The Samaritan Pentateuch is a very important part of the textual process of understanding the, and translating the bible but now jesus makes pretty clear to worship he doesn't ignore her question our fathers worshiped on this mountain mount garrison but you say in jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship jesus said to her woman believe me the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in jerusalem will you worship the father you worship what you do not know we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So he's telling her, salvation has come from the Jewish nation. That's how God worked it out. God called Abraham deep within the earth, the Chaldees, and he gave him that promise. And you understand the unfolding of God's divine plan through the centuries. And Christ came, the Messiah came, and God fulfilled that wonderful promise. He said, now you all don't understand. You worship in that mountain, but you don't really understand it. Salvation is from the Jews. We should be worshiping there in Jerusalem. But there is an hour coming, and it's all people don't realize it. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Doesn't matter where you worship God. The hour's coming, time's already here. You don't it doesn't matter whether you worship in Jerusalem, it doesn't matter whether you worship in Mount Gerizim. You worship what you do not know as a Samaritan. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. He brings her right back to the point. Right back to the point. And it's such a wonderful way, such a wise way to bring, to answer that and come right back to the point. And I haven't always been able to do that. But I always try to look for the attempted deflection away from the the study, off on a tangent. And I try to stay away from that tangent, answer it, and come back. That's my point. I think we have a pattern here to follow in how to approach people and study with them now let's talk a little bit about this point in 23 what is God God is a spirit verse 24 but the hour is coming and now here uh when the true worshipers will worship who the father worship I'm not going to worship any pagan god I'm not going to worship any building I'm not going to worship uh Anything that comes from this world. I'm not going to worship the sun. I'm not going to worship the moon. I'm not going to worship the stars, all of which there are people who worship. Statues. I was in a restaurant the other day. Carol and I, she said, I like to try that. And I'm not going to tell you where it is. But I got to eat in there, and it's some Oriental type of place. And Carol asked me, she says, how does this taste to you? I said, do you really want to know how this tastes to me? She says, yeah, what does it taste like I said, it tastes like burnt dirt to me. I don't like this. I'm sorry, I don't like this. And um, uh, if you like it, fine, but it's just not my kind of thing here. I like oriental food. I do, you know, I like that. This just wasn't working for me. And, and... uh I go up to pay the bill, very nice people, very nice, and all that kind of thing. And they've got statues down there on the floor with fruit and vegetables and stuff down there on the floor. And and, uh, this is their God, and they're worshipping that. I don't think that even though we're in modern times and we're an enlightened society, that we do not have paganism all around us. We do. Yes, sir. has a big history there's a lot of history too i know that i jumped over a lot of stuff there you're right there is a lot of history there it's where it's where joseph got the jacob got the vision of the ladder and the angels ascending and descending it's where it's where joseph came and his brother saw him coming behold the dreamer cometh i mean there's a lot of history involved in that that place right there and i should probably talk about it but i didn't um uh, there's a lot more that could be said about this particular point. The point I'm kind of working on right now is this worship the Father. And I've got that out uh, underlined in my verse here. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And I, I think we should emphasize the fact that God is a spirit. And that's the kind of worship that we should offer to him. The right kind of worship. Uh, God is a spirit. He's not a pagan. He is not material. You don't worship him with little statues on the floor with fruit and vegetables. Uh, God is a spirit. He's a spirit being. And he's not a material corporeal type of being. Uh, He's not that kind of God. Anything other than that would be a false God. But this is the true God. And we will worship the true God. He's the only one that deserves worship. That Satan came up to Jesus and said, All these nations of the earth I'll give you if you bow down and worship me. Worship me. Jesus said, Thou shalt, serve, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. John, Matthew chapter 4. We're not going to worship you. not going to worship you. We're going to worship the Father. He's worthy of it. We're going to worship him in truth. The Father in spirit and truth. That's the kind of worship that God expects. Truthful worship. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Verse 24. And those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. They've got to worship in the same way that God is. In his character. God is a spirit. And our worship is to be a a worshipful attitude. Of spirit. So, we got to worship the right being and we got to worship him the right way for it to be acceptable in his sight. So, I think John 4 and 24 is a pivotal passage that you may want to mark in your Bible and go back from time to time and reread. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and true. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Verse 26. All right, I'm going to have to stop there because of the bell. I don't like stopping, but I will.